Hey, Question Culture listeners. Originally, this interview was going to be the second part of a two-part episode about the war in Afghanistan. However, after finishing the interview, we realized the topic was more about being a soldier and a veteran than it was about the war in Afghanistan specifically, so we decided to release it as a standalone interview on Veterans Day. We just wanted to give you the heads up to avoid confusion, as we do mention this being part two a couple times throughout the interview, and we didn't want you thinking you missed anything. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did. Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody wants to rock the boat. It's all bullshit, folks. It's all bullshit, and it's bad for you. But we believe them because they're pounded into our heads from the time we're children. Children should be taught to question everything, to question everything they read, everything they hear. Welcome to Question Culture with Brian and Lornette. This is part two of our episode on the Afghanistan war. And for this part, we are joined by a very, very special guest, a veteran who served in Afghanistan, Gretchen Evans. Thanks for coming on, Gretchen. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. And as always, I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Lornette. How's it going, buddy? Good evening, everybody. And thanks for listening to Question Culture. Um, we're very excited about our guest tonight. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's an honor. So Gretchen, you have the First, the sec you are our second official guest on the Question Culture podcast. So, um, so welcome and thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah. So, I mean, I wanted to get started um, on Question Culture on this podcast. We tend to kind of look at things from the big picture, you know. So we kind of look at climate change, war, kind of just big picture things. But I, when we do that, we kind of lose the perspective of having someone who lived the day to day life of what we're talking about. So I'm really excited to have you on and kind of provide that perspective for us. Um, and I just wanted to start by asking, um, just kind of going back to the beginning, um, what made you want to join the military in the first place or what kind of motivated you to, to be in the military? Well, it was actually an act of survival to begin with. Um, I lost both my parents at the age of 15. They died within six months of each other of cancer. Oh my God. My oldest brother, uh, who had just turned 21, took guardianship of myself and my younger brother. But at age 18, the rule was you kind of were on your own. So I went to college for a year and tried to work full time and, and go to school. It was, it was harder than I expected. So I thought to myself, you know, I'll join the military, take advantage of the educational benefits and get a skill and then I'll get out and finish my college education. But what I found once I joined the military was this incredible, I don't know, organization that served others. And that's where that term used to, you ask people what they did, they say, I'm in the service. And that term came from serving others. So whether it be humanitarian efforts or in combat or in, the, in our own United States, um, it meant that you were doing something to serve somebody other than yourself. And that really appealed to my, to my inner self. So I don't know, I always say, I don't know if the Army found me or I found the Army, but it was, it was a perfect match. So what turned out to be a four-year enlistment turned out to be 27 years. Wow. 
Was there any reason that you chose the army as opposed to any other branch of the, the service or you just kind of fell into it? Yeah, that's my funny story. So I went down to the recruiting station and all five um, service organizations represented. They were side by side. So the first one I walked into was the Marine Corps and I'm very petite. I'm about five foot two and 100 pounds and probably lighter than when I was 19. And he said, oh no, you're too <laughs> So he sent me next door to the uh, Air Force and I would say, well, I'm in the Air Force and I want to fly airplanes, but you had to be five foot four to fly. Oh. So I walked out their door. Next was the Navy. <laughs> and I was all gung ho about the Navy, you know, sailing the seven seas, ready to go. Everything was. Ready. I looked up on the, on the wall and they had a picture of a sailor in uniform. And I said, Are you guys still wearing those bell bottom pants? And he goes, Oh, yeah. I said, <laughs> Oh, no. I can't do that. Oh, come on, Gretchen. That's a true story. A That's a true story. So, so, you could have been like me, a sailor. Yeah, she had, she had more of a fashion sense than you did. Yeah, I, you know, and they're still wearing them. I don't, I don't know. It was just, it was, I wore them in the 80s. I was not going to wear them anymore. But anyway, so I went next door to the Army, and the Army said, we don't care how big you are. We just care how big your bite is. So uh, the army took me uh, as is, and uh, it was a great decision. So Gretchen, there's a uh, we're going to talk about some some navy dungarees. Uh, the, the cadence that we used to sing in boot camps is uh, now wearing dungarees. <laughs> took away no, they took away my blue jeans. Now wearing dungarees, and those were the the ugly <laughs> bell bottoms. They phased them out in the '80s, <laughs> thankfully. So by the time I joined in 2001, we had kind of more like just blue khaki pants in our coveralls and of course the Cracker Jack uniforms that everybody know and the dress whites that everybody knows. Um, so. Right. Now I married a Navy guy, so I love the Navy, but <laughs> I, I couldn't get past those <laughs> bell bottom white pants. Uh, well, Gretchen, um, before we kind of get deeper into this uh, discussion and, and conversation, I would love uh, just for our, our, our listeners who, um, you know, everybody should be familiar with you, but, you know, people aren't. Um, but the people who aren't, uh, definitely, would you just want to give kind of just a, a quick bio about yourself and introduce yourself? Sure. So, um, as you know, I joined the Army and served 27 years. It would have been longer, but uh, in 2006, um, I was the command sergeant major of all the bases in Afghanistan under wow. Lieutenant General Akinberry. And we were at the end of our, almost at the end of our tour. And you know, in the military, in the, in the, in combat, the toughest time are the first three months when you yeah. first hit country, and then the last three months. And the last three months, the reason they're so critical is that everybody starts thinking about going what? Back home, yeah. Going home. Going back home. And so I was flying around in my helicopter. Uh, visiting some really remote forward operating bases just to kind of give a morale talk and say, listen, we're so close to going home, you can almost smell the apple pie. However, we're still in a very dangerous place. So I need you to keep your head on a swivel. We're almost there. I want everybody to get home is safe and you can see your families. While I was at this forward operating base, um, I had been on the ground like 10 minutes, and all of a sudden we started receiving mortar fire. 
So the protocol is you send out a quicker action force to go and eliminate whoever it is that's shooting at you. In the meantime, everybody else gets in these concrete bunkers to protect yourself from the incoming fire. So like any sergeant major, I was yelling at my troops, get in the bunkers, get in the bunkers. But before I could get myself in a bunker, a, a round landed to my right and detonated. And when it detonated, it uh, threw me into headfirst into a concrete bunker. And even though I had a Kevlar on, it was still a pretty big impact. So um, I was medevac to Bagram and then to Lawnstool. And uh, they put me in a coma for a couple of days to do an assessment of my injuries. And what came out of that was a pretty severe closed head wound, a traumatic brain injury. I lost all my hearing. I had some maternal injuries and some skeleton issues just from the blast. So when I woke up from that coma, the doctor, you know, informed me via a white, a dry erase board that I was deaf. And I knew at that moment, that very second, that my career was over. Um, and it was pretty devastating, to be honest with you. Um, I went in at 19, was wounded at 46, so my Basically, my entire adult life was spent in the military, and I didn't have a plan B because I wasn't anticipating on getting hurt. So it wasn't like I was thinking about retirement. We were in the middle of a war. I was with my troops. It never occurred to me to think about retirement. So I laid in that hospital bed thinking, okay, what's next? Was that the first time you were ever injured? Oh, First time they're seriously injured. You know, when you serve 27 years in the Army and you jump out of airplanes, you get hurt a lot. <laughs> see, 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 Gretchen, that's why I didn't join the Army because you all uh, jump out of perfectly good planes. And why would you jump out of perfectly good planes? But you can talk stuff about me being in the middle of the ocean on a, on a metal yeah, floating yeah. boat. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, broken feet and hands and, you know, those don't count. Okay. Those are minor injuries, but uh, you know, every once in a while you get your bell rung when you hit just you hit wrong. So um, I would say, technically, it was the first time I was severely wounded, but not the first time I'd ever been hurt. No. Was that the, was Afghanistan the first time you were ever in, in an active combat zone like that? Oh no! So that was my seventh combat tour. So my first combat tour was in Grenada at age 23, and then uh, Panama, well before that, Central America, and then Panama, Kosovo, Bosnia, um, Somalia, and then Iraq, and then Afghanistan. Wow. Well, okay. well Gretchen, um, thinking about that um, amazing you know, career in service and kind of this, I have so many questions I could ask you, but kind of keep it on key. Um, this amazing career in service, you had this devastating injury, and kind of one of the things I work with currently in my, my day job is kind of this piece of veterans transition, transitioning. Now, I did four years and had to do that transition, but I kind of was thinking about a plan B. But, you know, there are some people who get out four years or like yourself after 20-plus uh, years of service or 40-plus years of service and that transition. So I guess my question to you, Gretchen, is what was the – what was the most challenging part of your transition from 
being in the military to becoming a civilian again? Yeah, so that's a hard question, but it, but so my first, had I not been hurt, the transition would have been hard anyways, because when you grow up in the military, I mean, literally grow up in the military, that's what you know. And so the civilian world is very different. Oh, yeah. So an example is, yeah, like the first job I ever had out of the military, they gave me a project to do, and I wasn't finished with it, but it was 5 o'clock, and the, and the, the boss walks in and says, you got to go home because we're not going to pay you overtime. And I go, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> there's, no, there's no overtime in the military. You, you work. You finish until, like, the sergeant major says, you're done, and then you go home, okay? There's no, you know, you finish, you work to task, not, you know, you, so I said, I know I need to finish this, and he goes, no, you can do it tomorrow, and that that was, like, new to me, that I could walk away from an unfinished task and come back and do it the next day. Also, the um, showing up on time. So, you know, we say in the military, 15 minutes early is on time, on time is late and late is unacceptable. So I'm habitually early. And so people who are habitually late kind of make me crazy. And um, it was just a whole new world to me. Now you add that on top of my injuries, a traumatic brain injury with a, a little bit of a cognitive, cognitive delay, my deafness, which means I'm reading lips um, and you, it just was, it was, it was overwhelming, okay? It was, uh, it was hard to readjust to a, a world that I hadn't been in for 20-something years and hard to understand the new, um, I, was a, I was a private in a new man's army, and so I was trying to, to learn the rules and of the game, and some days were good and some days were really crappy. Because of the head injuries, did you suffer from any kind of like depression or PTSD or anything like that? Yeah, so, of course. So, um, you know, like, I would say like just about any soldier who in, I was, and I use that term generically, I would say any service member who suffers from a life-changing injury, um, there's always that thought, well, I would have been better off if I'd have just died there. Okay, it would have been an honorable death, but now I'm left with this broken body. Um, I don't hear anymore. My brain doesn't work as used like it used to. You have PTSD, you have moral injury, all these things, and you, and sometimes the days are hard, and it gets exhausting to find a reason to continue until you find your new passion and purpose. So I would say yes, I deal with depression, anxiety. Um, the why am I why am I still here thoughts yeah. like most uh, until I found until I found my new way and it was it was a hard it was a hard fight probably the hardest fight I'd ever been in what what kind of pulled you out of it I would say um, my family you know I have a wonderful husband a beautiful daughter um, also my battle buddies you know I was a senior leader. And there was lots of people who were still in contact with me who were suffering from PTSD as well. And I thought to myself, man, if I check out of the net, what, what kind of message am I sending 
to my troops. So there was this um, obligation, I think, in the beginning to, to better myself so that I could be an example for them, which was probably what saved my life. Yeah, I've never, I personally have never served in the military, but when speaking with friends and other people who have, um, I kind of hear a lot about kind of the brotherhood of being in the service, and that's kind of one of the most powerful things that you experience in the service right. that you don't really get on the civilian level. Right. I, you know, in the military, it's kind of funny because, like, in the, I guess in the civilian world, after you're done with your day, you go to your respective homes. In the military, especially if you're downrange, there is no respective home. It's yeah. <laughs> you sleep uh, in the same tent or in the same ground or whatever it is. And so this bond is like you're with them 24-7. You eat yeah. your crappy meals together. You sleep on the ground together. You share your meal. I mean, you know, you know more about these people that or outside of your uh, nuclear family that yeah. you know about your own family sometimes. And so it's a, it's a very strong bond. And so in the civilian world, um, it's hard to create, recreate that because at the end of the work day, you, you go home. Yeah. And, and you may never know from your coworker um, what goes on in their life. But with your troops, you know, you, you probably know more than you want to know at some <laughs> <laughs> and um, and you're I don't know you're enmeshed with them and 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 actually it's a beautiful thing it really is. So so Gretchen, um, yeah, I, I, I used to tell when um, I was a teacher in Chicago or an instructor, um, some of the youth I would work with who were kind of the age to join the military would kind of ask me questions, and I would always tell I would tell anybody that the military is not a job, it's yeah. a way of life. So. <laughs> it is. Uh, so thinking about your, you know, your career, you started off from a 19 year old E1 and, and, and work your way through the ranks to the command sergeant major. So correct me. For, for those of us who for, are naive, who don't know about the military, you know, the, the different levels, what yeah. is, so how does it, how does e, it go? What's the order? So basically, uh, Gretchen, so I'm, I wasn't in the army, so I'm assuming command sergeant major is an E9. So it's like a command master chief in the Navy equivalent, correct? Yeah, so right. Command Sergeant Major is the highest rank for a non-commissioned officer in the uh, in the Army. So there's a difference between a Sergeant Major and a Command Sergeant Major. So the rank, what the rank looks like is there's a star, you have three up and three down stripes, and you have a star and you have a wreath if you're a command. And what that means is that you're in command of troops. You're not a staff Sergeant Major. So there's a little bit of a differentiate, no extra pay, God forbid. I can't that. But, um, sounds, sounds like Uncle Sam. <laughs> yeah, there's no extra pay. But you're supposed to be the advocate for the troops. Your rank is given to you by the president that is in office. So that is supposed to give you the privilege and the honor to be able to walk into a three or four star general's office and advocate for the troops without fear of retribution because he or she cannot take your rank away. And so it, it makes you kind of an, an honest broker um, that you can go in there and say, hey, the troops are, the morale's bad or they're exhausted or they're whatever. 
can we give them a break or something like that and not have a fear that they're going to come at you and 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 get cattywampus with you so it's i never thought i'd be a sergeant major there was you know i went in as i was a slick sleeve private okay <laughs> and but through hard work and really great leadership and discerning between what's good and what's bad um you know i achieved that rank and my promise to myself was was that if i ever got there i would be a good one what um so you start as a private what levels do you go through to get up to that point like what's that ne- what's next after private and then you know what, oh what's god different? there's a lot <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's a lot it's a lot it's a lot that's a, that's a whole that's like we could do yeah, a podcast a, on each rank how much we yeah, ta- a, how many are we talking like 20 levels or what is that no it's, it's uh, not talking like you know there's all these schools you have to go to from primary leadership school to basic non-commissioned officer school to advanced uh, non-commissioned upper school to first sergeant school to finally the sergeant major academy at Fort Bliss but along the way you know you have to like max your PTS, PT test you have to um, you've got to be above the average and for a female who went in in 1979 there were not many of me and by the time I made sergeant major there were, were not many of me either but um, I can honestly say that I, I had the privilege of having some really great leaders that showed me what it meant to be a servant leader, even, you know, and even then. So, yeah, you know, I, I, um, I ate spleen a couple of times to prove myself. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, well, Gretchen, um, since I personally know you, I, I really understand that you know i see still see you as a servant leader to this day um and then kind of one of the things you touched on is it's kind of joining the military which you know I, I was honest with some of the um young women i used to teach who was interested in the military and tell them that it's a it's it's a boys club and even to this day it still is um and i wish the world was a better place where we just looked at everybody and judged them based off their their character as dr king once said um but unfortunately we don't live in that perfect world so what was your, if you, if you don't mind me asking, what was your experience of being a, a woman in the military in the 80s and 90s and, and moving your way, way up through the ranks to, to achieve the rank that you have, which most people who join don't? Well, as you knew, Lornette, there's always going to be haters, okay? So for me, I just learned to sidestep them, okay? Honestly, I didn't engage them. Um, you know, you have to decide for yourself uh, who you are and who you want to be. And people who want to try to diminish that, uh, yes, sometimes they get it in the way and they make things incredibly hard. But I had a, I was laser focused on being the best leader that I could. And honestly, I would have been happy at a lower rank. Um, it wasn't striving to be a command sergeant major i was just striving to be a good leader um and with uh hard work and being in the right place at the right time i achieved that rank but um yeah there's always going to be those people in the world unfortunately that uh are not are in the same boat with you but are paddling against you yeah say yeah and so I just, um, 
tried to ignore them as best I could, tried to um, stay focused on what I wanted to do and take care of my troops. And, um, you know, it worked out for the best, I think. When you faced adversity from being a woman, did you feel that, did it come mostly from, like, other people in a similar rank as you, or did it come more from, like, leadership? Well, both ways. came from higher people who were not used to having women as senior leaders, uh-huh. and then it came from troops who were thinking, oh, yeah, like, this 100-pound woman's going to lead me into war? I don't think so. And, um, and so to gain their their trust and their loyalty and and the best way to do that is to be good uh with your word yeah but mean what you say say what you mean also you're the thermometer of the unit so i set the example so um you know for me it was you know being in the right uniform showing um that I could do the PT test, knowing my job, knowing what needed to be done. Also leading with a little bit of grace and mercy because, you know, we're all human beings. So I was I was easy with the hammer in some instances, of course. Uh, everybody makes mistakes and I didn't want one mistake to ruin somebody's career. So it was kind of sergeant major was, yeah, you got to come stand in front of me, explain what you were thinking when whatever you did was what you did. And yes, I need to take action because that's my job, but I'm going to follow it away. And in, in 90 days, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trash it. And you're and to me, uh, everybody gets a second chance. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that, Gretchen, because uh, as someone who was once one of those uh, junior enlisted men, uh, we we do some stupid shit. <laughs> I, I, I was yes. no better than the rest. <laughs> you do. Okay. So the average age in the military is 24. So you think about it. What I was working with was 19-year-olds to 24-year-olds. And, you know, as wonderful as that age group is, they're still developing their who they are and their how their brain works. And so they do... You give them million-dollar toys and then expect them not to make mistakes. And that's unrealistic. So if it wasn't with malice, then grace was given. If it was with malice, then I dealt with it a different way. So did you have any other questions on that you wanted to get into before we talked about Afghanistan specifically? No, no, I think uh, I think this is great. Um, okay. Yeah, let's, we could talk about your, your time in uh, Afghanistan um, and, and answer these questions at your comfort level um, and kind of what you want people to know about those experiences? Yeah, I mean, I'll start kind of general because this was kind of what our episode was about. It was about the Afghanistan war. You know, it's a 20-year war, um, extremely long. A lot of people that were fighting in it at the end weren't even born when it began. Um, so I, I'm just kind of curious what it was, what it's like when you're in a foreign country like that do are you interact? Did you get to interact with the Afghanistan people at all, or were you pretty much just working with you know Americans who were there serving? What was it like, kind of you know being in another country and just did you interact with the population at all, or how how does that really work? Yeah. Okay. So from the first time I went to Afghanistan was right after the initial invasion, and when we were trying to 
establish an infrastructure, and the and the Taliban was still kind of sort of in charge, and and it was tough because we had to put in like electricity, we had to build roads, we had to do all this kind of stuff. The second and third time I went back to Afghanistan, I was you know leading a unit and so I was in the position where I had to do some negotiations with the Taliban with the warlords and things like that and of course we all know how they kind of feel about the female population and they were not used to dealing with a female but um, you know it, it, it was what it was I interacted with them frequently I had a translator with me that that rode in my vehicle or my aircraft, wherever I went. I had a personal security detachment that was responsible for my personal security because I was a senior ranking person and also was a female. And what we did want to happen was for me to ever be taken captive because as my general used to say, Sergeant Major, I don't want to see you begging for your life on CNN. And because that would have been really a horrific possibility. Um, so, of course, I interacted with them. I had to make we had to make deals with them, and you know there was times when I said, "I'm gonna, my troops are gonna be traveling from point A to point B. It's through your territory that you control. If you won't shoot at us, I won't burn down your poppy fields. How about that?" and literally make a deal because I wasn't there to uh, regulate their their poppy field income. I was there to to stop the evilness of the Taliban and ISIS and whoever else was there that was being doing inhumane things to innocent people. So the thing about um, the military is that you're going to remember that we are there to protect those who cannot protect themselves and there to free the oppressed. And that was a mission in Afghanistan. We could have cared less about politics or land or anything about that. We were there just to ensure that the people who were taking advantage of people who couldn't defend themselves had some help. And so I interact with the Afghan people quite frequently. How did you determine who who you were trying to help? Like, how's that decision made? The decision's made on well, and it's and it's a it's a fluid thing, okay? Because any, on any given day, a what we call a hostile village would turn friendly, and a friendly village would turn hostile, and and I mean it could happen in a so you go in and make a what you call um, you know a deal with a village but then the Taliban would come in right behind you and threaten them with um, you know killing everybody or taking their women and children and they would turn hostile towards the American forces and our allied forces it was constantly a moving target it was one of the um, biggest challenges that we had was that the Taliban would go in there and threaten these people and knowing that someday, we didn't know it was going to be 20 years, but someday we knew we were going to leave and so did the Afghan people and they were going to be left there to deal with what was going on and so um, they had to make the best deal that they could.
and sometimes it was not in our favor. So in addition to kind of having to make these deals with the Taliban, were you also then kind of interacting with the people in the villages? Yeah, so he would, um, we would gather intel from the people in the villages. We would also help them with uh, provisions, with food, uh, rebuilding schools, rebuilding hospitals that have been destroyed uh, under the rule of the Taliban, putting in just uh, infrastructure so they had water, so they had electricity, all these kinds of things. So we were doing humanitarian efforts at the same time we were fighting a war. And uh, Gretchen, I, I want to ask you kind of, because Afghanistan and, you know, with Biden withdrawing down from the conflict, um, 20 years of war, what, and, and, and I, I, you know, I have an understanding, obviously uh, serving during Iraqi Operation Iraqi Freedom, although I did not serve in Afghanistan, um, but an average civilian who's never been in the military, don't, has no connection to the military, not even a friend or family in the military. What is something that the average American might get wrong about, you know, Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, or just kind of something that the average citizen here gets wrong who's never served? Yeah, so I think the average citizen needs to separate uh, the war from the soldier. So those of us who were in the military when 9-11 happened, you know, we raised our hand as a volunteer army, okay? Nobody has been drafted since uh, Vietnam Day. So everybody's there because they want to be. And we raise our hand and we make a vow that we would defend uh, our country against foreign domestics, so help us God. So when the war started, we went and we did what we were told to do. And felt justified in doing so because they had come to America and attacked us. As the war lingered on, the mission, of course, changed because it had been 20 years since 9-11 and the longest war in history. But I tell the American citizens, it's okay that you're against the war. Nobody hates war more than the soldier who's fighting it because we're the ones that are away from our families. We're the ones getting shot at. We're the ones that are in this place. Nobody wants to be there, but it's our job to be there. And actually, you need us there. Um, otherwise, there's nothing to prevent a movement like that to take and hold in our own country. And you can hate the war and still love the soldier who's serving. And that's the difference that needs to be made, is that don't be mad at me because my profession was to be a professional soldier and I did my duty, whether you believe in the war or not. Um, so that's the first thing I tell them. The second thing is, is that, yeah, it was an ugly withdrawal. I'll be the first one to admit that. And I've gotten lots of calls from my troops saying, you know, hey, Sergeant Major, was it all for nothing? And my, what I've been saying to them is this, don't get caught up in this political stuff, okay? Yeah. That doesn't take away from your honorable duty, from your sacrifice that you made to go to Afghanistan. It doesn't take away from the people that you protected. It doesn't take away from any of those things. The pullout was determined by people 
echelons above reality, way above my pay grade and your pay grade. And we're not to get caught up in that. Um, I said, you served honorably, you did what you were told, and you held up your vow that you made when you raised your hand. And that is what you're supposed to do and feel good about that. I think that's a really important message, and it's true yeah. in a lot of different aspects of life, too. You know, because I, I come across that, you know, more, more often on the Internet than in person. But, you know, I'm anti-war. So, I'll, you know, I'll get, you know, I'll, I'll be speaking out against a war and then get accused of, you know, like hating soldiers or the troops when it's really that's not it. It's I I understand, you know, everyone has their job that they had to do. And but that doesn't mean I can't disagree with the systems that put people in those places. And I always kind of use this example, exactly. you, you know, I don't like how the medical industry functions, but that doesn't mean I hate doctors. I don't like right. a lot of what school boards do, but that doesn't mean I hate teachers. And it's same true, you know, with the military. Right. I might disagree with, what, you know, the politicians deciding where to send them, but that doesn't mean I have any, you know, I'm judging the, the actual soldiers who have to, you know, who have to go. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you. That, that's, a, that's a good message. Um, did, since we're kind of on the topic, did you ever while you were, I guess, while you were serving and then after you got out, did you ever think about the bigger picture things? I'm assuming most of the time you were focused on the day-to-day doing what you, you know, you had to do in the moment, day-to-day kind of stuff. Did you ever step back and look at the bigger picture of it and why you were there and that stuff either during or after you served? Yeah, I actually, because of my position in Afghanistan, being uh, one of the most senior leaders there, at least in the for non-commissioned officers, so I was on daily briefings with the with the White House and the Secretary of the Army and the Joint Chief of Staff. I had the big picture. I was well aware of the big picture, and what I had to do was break it down to what my troops needed to do to satisfy what the what the people given the orders wanted to be done that's what the sergeant major does the commander gets the orders and he turns to the sergeant major and says okay go make this happen so but the other side of that is is that your average young soldier doesn't get the one over a hundred thousand dollar you know view they get their view as is oh my God, okay, I haven't slept in three days and now I'm gonna go out and have to do this and this. And they don't, they don't get that because they're not privy to all the briefings and all the information that is given to senior leaders. And so I think the younger you are and the junior rank you were while you served in Afghanistan can certainly taint how you might feel about that whole 20 years. Um, now, I will say this, when I, the first time I went to Afghanistan, it was dismal. I mean, honestly, there, it was the most, it was like walking into the 13th century. There was no infrastructure, nothing. But by the time I left in 2006, you know, women were back to work, girls were back in school, there was hospitals, there was roads that had been built. And I saw just in six years, a huge change. And to me, that was progress. Um, what's happening now, 
I can't tell you, okay? Um, you know, I'm not hearing great things that, you know, now that we pulled out that some things that the Taliban had put into practice are back uh, the way they were prior to 2001, and that saddens my heart. Uh, it also saddens my heart that we didn't get everybody out that we promised to get out. Um, I do think we should be good with our word as a country and as people. Yeah. So that bothers me that that didn't go as it should have. Um, some people are comparing it to the pullout of Vietnam, of Saigon, with the helicopters pulling people off the top of the embassy. I can certainly say um, it looks like that sometimes. Uh, and it feels like that sometimes. I hope that it's not the same. And and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But in hindsight, you know, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, so you would never know in the moment. But looking back on it, are you happy with the decisions that people higher up than you made? Do you think the Afghanistan, like the Afghanistan war as a whole, do you think we should have never been there, or do you think we made? enough progress to help enough people that it was worth it? Like, how do you, how do you look at it now having the 2020 hindsight? Uh, so nothing is worth a honorable soldier service member's death. There, that is priceless in of itself. So, you know, unfortunately war causes death and we lost lots of wonderful heroic men and women, that hurts, and it probably always hurt me. Um, my comment about that is going to probably surprise you, but it is what it is, is that I'm apolitical in that sense as a warrior, that I have to have confidence in those appointed above me, that they're making decisions that are good and sound, and maybe because I'm no longer on active duty, I don't have the bird's eye view anymore, and that those decisions were made in good faith. Um, and so for me to think any different would be a discredit to my position as a Sergeant Major. And um, so I just, have to, you know, I take orders from those appointed above me. It's part of my vow. And even if I don't like them, and I've not liked lots of them <laughs> before all this, um, unless they're illegal or immoral, you know, you salute the flagpole and you execute. So I, I want to uh, pose the question to you, and thanks for that insight, uh, Gretchen. Um, this, this kind of, this war... The, war in, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, but particularly Afghanistan, since it's our longest conflict, there was multiple deployments. So you talked about your three deployments. Um, kind of what do you, what would you kind of tell the, the civilians who don't serve and, and the people who, who've never served? Um, kind of how do you think those multiple deployments have impacted um, the service members, um, those who are veterans like me, myself, and you, or um, those who are still serving? Yeah, so this was a different war. If you think about the most recent wars, let's just go back even to um, Korea. So the Korean War happened. They mobilized troops. They went over there. They fought the war. They came home. 
anything in, uh, even in World War II. They went over for four years, they fought the war, they came home. Vietnam came and they fought the war. Sometimes they went back more than once, okay? But even that war compared to the 20-year war in Afghanistan was a short war. So most of my friends, most of my battle buddies served at least three tours, if not five or six. So what happens when that happens is, is that it's a small country. So let's say you have a skirmish over a piece of land and you gain that piece of land because it's strategic and you need it or you free a village or whatever it is. And then you rotate back to your unit at Fort Bragg or Fort Campbell or wherever your station. And then you get called up 18 months later and you go back and all of a sudden you're fighting the same battle for the same piece of land that you won 18 months ago and where your buddies were killed. And that is hard on the soul to say, didn't I just fight this 18 months ago and didn't my buddy die right here on this ground and here I am 18 months later and I'm back here and I'm fighting, I'm fighting over the same piece of ground and it can be very, and that's where I think the moral injury comes in. It's not PTSD, it's more of a moral injury, whereas your, you know, the moral injury is where your inner soul gets violated. So me as Gretchen Evans, um, under no circumstances outside of the military would I ever kill someone or anything like that. But Gretchen Evans as a command sergeant major in the Army during combat operations, I am called to do things like that. At the end of the day, I have to stand in front of a mirror when I'm brushing my teeth and I have to reconcile what command sergeant major Gretchen did and who, and who I ordered to do things with Gretchen the person, the mother, the wife, the daughter, the sister. And that reconciliation every day is a fight. Because you can't ignore the things that I did in combat. They happened. And yet my soul, as a kind, loving person who loved people in general, you have to tell yourself over and over again that you're okay, that you're not tainted or you're not evil or you're not broken and so I think that that's where this battle comes in especially with the young troops what I had on my side when I got injured was I had wisdom and I had yeah. age okay well if you get blown up at 20 you're still a kid yeah and you still don't know who you are and you had to do things that you didn't want to do and you're looking in the mirror and you're questioning, what was it all about? And so I, that's where I think the suicide rate is so high. Mm -hmm. They don't have the tools to reconcile what they did in the military with who they are as a person. There's that degree of separation that they haven't been able to figure out yet. And it, and it, it, it causes problems. 
what could we do to help that? Like, would it be just like, you know, giving, letting them be able to talk to a psychologist? Like, what do you think can help? Because you're right, because like the suicide rate among veterans is, you know, just insanely more high than like the average population. What can we do to help soldiers with that? I do think talking about it with the right person is certainly helpful. But I also think that peer-to-peer support is probably the most powerful thing that we can do. So, and that was one of the reasons I wrote my book, was that me as a command sergeant major, um, highly decorated, um, could be vulnerable enough to say, yeah, I came back from the war and wanted to kill myself. Okay, I came back from the war broken and on my knees, um, wishing that I had been killed on the battlefield and that I wouldn't have to deal with life as an injured veteran. Um, but that wouldn't have not that was not the right decision. And I, you know, I wrote about this and I wanted to encourage and inspire others to say, it's not just you. Okay, you're not broken, you're unbroken. There's things that happen to us and we've been dealt a new hand. This is the new hand we have to play. It's not a bad hand, it's just a different hand. You might have had four kings and an ace and maybe now you have three queens and a jack and an ace, okay? It's still a good hand. And and actually it's the hand that you have. So you have to play it and to mitigate you know, the, your injuries as best that you can, get the help that you need it, find help people that are on your, what I call rope team, like Lornette's on my rope team. I probably converse with Lornette via LinkedIn or email or Facebook probably a couple times a week, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that you and I, you know, we, we kind of watch each other to kind of see where we each other's are. So I believe in having a rope team, people that you can count on whether you're up or you're down. So the analogy is in a military, we actually tied ourselves to each other while we were traversing really steep terrain. And the purpose of that rope team was if one of your members slipped, they wouldn't fall to their death. They would just slip for a little ways because they were tied to the rest of us and the rest of us would pick in until that person stood up. It's the same thing just in life. You got to find those people that you can tie yourself to so that when you slip, because you will slip, you will have hard times that will pick in with you until you can stand back up. But also you have a responsibility as a rope team member to be the person that picks in if one of your buddies slips and falls and you got to be there. And it's not easy to find a rope team, but I tell everybody, you need to have four or five people in your life that no matter what are going to pick in with you. <laughs> I think that's good advice, that's a, military or that's not, damn you good know, advice. just for everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a damn good advice. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Gretchen, you, you talked about kind of like finding your, you know, your, your, your rope team and kind of one of the things that I feel like we've moved away from as a society. Um, and I'm speaking as far as like our, our culture, the United States, um, you know, there's a transition when you go to the, the military, we got to go through basic training, all of us. And it kind of, the funny thing is whether you serve, you know, like me four years or yourself 27, 20 plus years, they kind of, once you get out, you're kind of just like, all right, you're not in the military anymore. Good luck. 
And you look at some of the indigenous cultures and how they would, they would, you know, slowly integrate their warriors back into society. Um, and and not everybody in the military serves directly in combat, but they all support whatever mission we have. But we're kind of just like once you get out, and I think this is probably one of the problems with the suicide rate and probably people with dealing with moral injury. It's not that kind of what the indigenous cultures knew when they after a war they 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 those people came together, those individuals who fought that war, um, and were part of that, and kind of decompress their experiences before they were released back into, you know, the, the rest of the group. And we don't do that. We don't do that. And what, but what I'm on the flip side, what I'm proud of, you know, uh, veterans like yourself, lots of organizations and programs are kind of filling that gap. And the, the biggest challenge is letting the men and women who serve and the individuals who serve know that these spaces are for them. Uh, and because we as a society has not done a good job of that, of like, you can't send people to be in this institution, those of the military, in the business of war, um, becoming warriors, becoming soldiers, becoming airmen, sailors, doing the, being in those high stress environments. And then after you get out, all right, yeah, we, we, we were processed to get in there and become part of the military. It has to be a process before we become, become civilians again to just decompress everything that we've experienced, whether it's four years. 20 years or 40 years in the service. Yeah, it's, <laughs> this is like, like this is like a two hour conversation, but it's, <laughs> there's like, honestly, in the civilian world, nobody cares that I was a Sergeant Major. Nobody yeah. cares that I won a Bronze Star. Nobody cares that about any of that stuff. Okay, honestly, I, yeah. they just don't. And, and, you know, and that's okay, but, um, you have to work really hard. We're the 1%. And the 99% that didn't serve are not going to accommodate the 1%. Yeah. The onus is on us, Lornette, and you know that. The onus is on us to try to navigate into the civilian world. And if you don't put a lot of effort into it and have some try to understand the way that it works, you're going to fail because it's so different than the military. The way that things are done, the culture, the language, the expectations is so different. Um, and you and you can be, you feel like an alien in your own country that you fought for. And yeah. that is so disconcerting that most of us just want to come back after we've served in, you know, stack arms, buy a house, put our kids in school, be a member of the PTA, get a job, be a member, be on the, be in a Rotary Club and a Kiwanis Club. And that sounds all really easy, but it's extremely hard when you don't know um, the rules of engagement. <laughs> okay. I don't know how else to say it, but... Um, <laughs> You know, you don't, it's a, there's a huge learning curve and the longer you are in, the bigger the curve is. And um, so I just tell people, you know, find someone or an organization that in a healthy way 
okay? No civilian bashing, okay? You can't do that. My husband used to say to me, when you say the word civilian, it sounds like a cuss word. <laughs> oh, he was a sailor, so he should know some cuss words. <laughs> Those civilians, okay? And it's true. It's true. It, it, you know, he called me on it. He says, they're not bad people, Gretchen. They're just different from your experiences, and you need to learn to embrace them because this is the world we live in now. And the sooner you make that paradigm change, the better off you are. It doesn't mean that you're not proud of your service, and it doesn't mean that you're not still a warrior at heart, and it doesn't mean that you'll always hold that time in the military sacred. But the reality is that you're not in the service anymore, and you've got to find a way to be the best you can be, just like you were in the military, be the best you can, can be in the civilian world so that you can be a good citizen, so you can contribute to society, so that you can be a problem solver, and you can be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And so I think that there's some programs out there that, that help people do that. And I'm always looking for them, and I'm always trying to be a part of them. Uh, but to sit back and lock arms with just our veterans brothers and say it's, it's us against them is not getting us anywhere. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm very proud about, about, uh, cause even when I, I got out, um, in 2005, you know, I knew about Wounded Warrior Project in, in the VA and now to 2021, there are so many organizations run by, you know, former veteran, I mean, veterans, um, uh, families of military, um, veterans and, and, and service members. And it's a really great support system. And, 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 you know, we come together and we, and, we, and we talk shit about each other's branches and all that stuff. And we all get together and, and, and talk stuff about the Air Force. That's right. <laughs> or the Coast Guard. You know, but, but we love I can't them. talk bad we... about the Air Force anymore. My, my daughter married an airman, so I can't oh, okay. talk bad about the Air Force anymore. Well, we still got the Space Force. <laughs> we, we still got the Space Force, Gretchen. We can talk That's about right. that. <laughs> um, so, um, first off, would you want to tell um, the listeners the name of your book? Oh, the name of the book is called Leading from the Front by Command Sergeant Major Gretchen Evans. And I had to put a disclaimer in there because I didn't want the Department of Defense coming at me and getting all sideways because I revealed some secrets. So this is a fiction book. But <laughs> by reading, if, you're, if you've ever served one day in the military, this book will resonate with you. And you'll know those stories are true because only troops could do things like this. Okay. Um, and I wrote it for my troops. It's not about me. It's about troops from my perspective as a sergeant major and the things that they did and how heroic and self, selfless they were, how amazing they were, how smart and yet how young and creative, if you will, they were. <laughs> I think I gave 154 <laughs> Article 15s in Afghanistan time I was there and it broke my heart every time I had to do it and, and I didn't want to do it but you know soldiers are soldiers and troops are troops <laughs> I tried to, to um, rectify them before they went back to country in some way but um, 
they're they're dear to my heart. Every one of them. My worst soldier is is no more or less loved than my best soldier. Okay, they're they're people, and they deserve the dignity and honor that they uh, have earned by raising their hands, saying they're going to protect their country. They might have been, you know, I had some clingers. Okay, so that's. <laughs> And that's that's what that's what can be frustrating for me is I think at the very least our veterans deserve to be taken care of, and it's very frustrating to me when I see some politicians that you know when it's time to go to war they're all about support the troops support the troops but then any time a bill comes across their desk to fund some kind of program for veterans all of a sudden you know oh we can't find the money you know and so that's super frustrating that I see happen all yeah. the time. Um, Sorry, I this is going way back in the conversation, but I've been thinking about it since you said it, so I just wanted to get an answer from you. Um, you mentioned earlier that you had to, when you were in Afghanistan, you had to meet with Taliban members to make deals and things like that. It was my understanding, as it was told to us, the mission when we first went to Afghanistan was to get Osama bin Laden and dismantle the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Was that your understanding as well when we first went into Afghanistan? Yeah, so the really the first thing we had to do, if you remember, I think it was October the 16th after, okay, so 9-11 happened on the 11th, and then October, I think it was, we sent the Air Force in, and they went in and they bombed all the terrorist operating camps where they were training the terrorists. That's the first thing we did, was get rid of all those camps. Now, we knew those camps were there for 10 years. We didn't do anything about them until they came across the pond and attacked us. And all of a sudden, we cared about them. But we went over there and we decimated the camps. And then the second task was to get the Taliban out of rule and out of doing inhumane treatments to people, which was mostly the women and and children of Afghanistan. That I think in in the same thing that we did in other countries where we saw dictators, same thing we did in Panama, same thing we did um, in, in Bosnia, where we saw inhumane treatment, we went in and tried to, like I said, free the oppressed and protect those who couldn't protect themselves. Then it became this constant battle of standing up the Afghan army so they could defend themselves. Well, you know, they didn't have one rifle between them. We got there, okay? <laughs> I mean, really, no equipment, no anything. So that was a, a great undertaking. When I left in 2006, what, what keeps me from really falling into a big despair is the fact that the women were back at work and the little girls were back in school and that there were hospitals and there were infrastructure and there was some freedom among the Afghan people that you could wear the burqa or not, where you could work or not, and that 10-year-old girls could marry 40-year-old men or not, that at least there, for the most part, were options. I, and that to me made it worth it, okay? That even if it was short-lived, there are children who were born during the 20 years that we were 
in Afghanistan that never knew what Afghanistan looked like before we went in, that lived under this umbrella of freedom and had a good life. My, my fear, or my worry, I should say, is that it's going to go backwards. And I would hate to see these freedoms taken away from people. Um, and I hope that it doesn't happen. Okay, and here's my follow-up question to that. And this is probably just me being naive as, you know, never served in combat, doesn't understand how combat works. So if your goal is to dismantle the Taliban and you mention that on the daily you had to make deals with them, why does that happen? Like, if, if this is the group that you're supposed to be attacking, why do you have to make these deals to let things happen? Shouldn't you just be attacking them all the time? You know, like, why do you have to make these deals with the group that you're supposed to be fighting against? Yeah, it's because we follow the Geneva Convention. And the Geneva Convention dictates that we don't kill people unnecessarily. That diplomacy is always, if, if it can be used, should be used. So you can't go in there and just wipe out people because they disagree with what you're doing. This is their country. We weren't there to try to change their religious beliefs or even really their culture. What we were trying to do was protect those not able to protect themselves. And so we were trying to negotiate uh, ways to operate within the country without disrupting their main income, which was poppies, okay? We weren't there to, to worry about the drugs. It was unfortunate that that's the way that most people make their living in Afghanistan, but that wasn't our mission. Our mission there was to, to take the Taliban out as the leaders of Afghanistan and put in a more democratic, more compassionate government. And this required diplomacy. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, that the, the, those rules of engagement um, are important. And, and, and what my hope is, uh, Gretchen, with, with the, the Afghanistan people is because of those, those changes in cultures after, you know, during the 20-year war, that they won't, the people there will refuse to go back to the way things were and that there will be resistance. And in a perfect world, you know, if I, I made decisions, obviously I would choose war as the last option within any country um, because, you know, I, I think of this, this one gun, me and, um, song by Jimi Hendrix called Machine Gun. And, you know, he was, he was, he's already just like you. And he jumped out of perfectly good planes too, uh, which I, I don't understand about you army folks jumping out of perfectly good planes, but you know, you do what you got to do. Uh, but the, the, the premise of the song was uh, geared towards the Vietnam War, but it kind of um, weaves this tale of the two soldiers, the, the Viet Cong fighting the soldier and kind of like they're, they're only families apart. Like this is, you know, some, some, some farmer and a rice farmer. This is probably some kid from Kansas and they're fighting each other across the world because of, you know, the politics. And that they're, you know, part of the same human family. So that song just has resonated with me since I first heard it when I was a young sailor uh, to this day. Um, and just that kind of that family humanity, because we kind of forget that with the politics and the bluster and the, and the, and, and the, 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 the chance of war. Um, but we forget that the people serving on the ground and the people that, you know, 
um, we're protecting over there are, are human beings. They have their own stories, their own lives. So um, it's, it's great to kind of get that perspective because we don't have it sometimes, especially in our discourse um, about conflict. Yeah. I mean, think about our own civil war, okay? Brother against brother, okay? The lines, these lines that are drawn are not real lines, okay? There's like no black line on the map that says this is where, you know, the good guys are and this is where the bad guys are. And it's the same thing in Afghanistan. It was, you know, that there's no such thing as a front line anymore. It's, you have to, it's the whole country and there are pockets of good and pockets of bad and that was part of the, the real big challenge there was that um, it's intermingled. You couldn't separate the good from the bad. It was so enmeshed. And like I said, on any given day, I would go in and make a deal with a warlord. And then the next day, he'd be shooting at me. And I'm thinking, did I not just sit down and drink tea with you okay, <laughs> yesterday? Shit. And already you're like, you know, you've changed your mind on making peace with me. And then, you know, then I have to take recourse with that. And it's unfortunate because the last thing I want to do is, you know, take a life over a piece of land or a road or an imaginary line on a map. It's, yeah. it's if you can't even fathom the process of that, where we, we take a map and we actually draw lines, but on the, when you walk the earth, it's the middle of a village or it's somebody's house. Yeah. Or it's, a, you know, a sacred graveyard or something. And so it's taking a map and then laying it on a real terrain. It's, it's, um, it's I can't, I don't, know, I don't have a good word for it. It's disconcerting. I guess the last question that I had to for you was, is there anything we kind of already talked about a little bit earlier about connect disconnecting, you know, the bigger picture of the war, what the politicians are doing compared to the soldiers. Um, And I just run into this issue all the time as like an anti-war activist where it's hard getting that message across that I'm against the war, but that doesn't mean I hate the troops or, you know, have any ill, you know, I, I don't want anyone to get hurt, including the troops, you know, is there anything as like an anti-war activist, like anyone, is there anything, should, is, should I just always be pounding that message that, you know, it's not that I've, you know, hate the troops or anything like that. I just think that, you know, the reason, you know, the people that are making the decisions are doing it in bad faith. Is there, I guess, do you see anything having served when you see somebody who's speaking out against the war? Is there anything they say ever that kind of pisses you off that, you know, you know, that you don't, that you don't like to hear and think they could have said differently or approached differently or don't understand? You know, I just want to see how I can connect better with people who are serving, even though it comes across like I'm against what they're doing, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, since the beginning of our days, there's always been wars and there always will be. And there'll be those that will be called to serve. It's a calling, it's, it's more than an occupation. There's something inside of you that says, I want to put my life on the line for something bigger than myself. And sometimes it's your country, sometimes it's your family. Before we would go into battle, I would ask my soldiers, what are we fighting for? It's not about land, it's not about oil, it's not about politics. We're fighting for our home address. 
whether it be Kansas or Texas or Maine or Georgia or whatever it is. There's somebody at that address that you love and their freedom is being challenged by whoever it is that we're fighting against that wish to do us harm. And by raising your hand, you said you would help do something about that. And at the end of the day, only you can decide whether or not you honored that vow. Not anybody else, not somebody standing up who's never walked in the sand or never fought in a battle or did that can make you feel like you did anything that was dishonorable. And so I said to him, just tune that stuff out. And you yourself have the right to hate war because you were there. It's okay to hate the war, but don't hate yourself for being a good warrior. And I think, Gretchen, that kind of will follow up with my my, my last question, because uh, I know um, we had a certain amount of time. But um, what advice would you kind of give those uh, individuals who are you know, making that transition. Um, you talked about your own transition and kind of, you know, it was it was not the transition that you had planned or hoped for. Um, and, and you talked about your challenges, very frankly. But what, what advice would you give to um, those folks who are making that transition, whether it's by choice or uh, not, by, not by choice and, and might be struggling with that, with that change? Yeah. yeah, again, I would say, you know, Go to the VA. The VA is not Christ incarnated, okay? <laughs> not the Antichrist. VA really does have programs that work. They, there are certain things that the VA does really well, and one of them is dealing with people with PTSD and with moral injury and, with, uh, and certainly with amputees, okay? So if you go to a civilian doctor who's never heard of some of the things that you're gonna say, they're gonna be less likely to be able to help you. Whereas you go to the VA and you talk to a counselor who's been dealing with veterans with PTSD and moral injury, they at least have an inkling of what you're going through and have some technology like virtual reality and EDMD for the, that can possibly help you. But more importantly than that, I truly believe if you find yourself with some people, okay, who maybe are a step ahead of you, who kind of, you know, crawled out of the hole or on the other side of the hole, who could reach a hand down and help you, that that's probably the most powerful thing that you can do to help your transition and your recovery. Because nobody loves a soldier like another soldier. Nobody cares, you know, more than, it's like there's this instant connection and instant bond and ex instant, I want to help you. I've never seen a veteran turn back, their back on another veteran, in the, even in the worst of times. Find your team. I rope team. I rope team. I, I, I mean, I'm gonna keep that. Or uh, as those Navy as Navy folks say, find your shipmate. Um, and, th and think about that camaraderie. The, um, the the the. I still have friends. You know, I, I met them 20 years ago. Um, exactly 20 years ago, uh, when I was a uh, 18 or well, 17 year old kid. Uh, well, 18 year old kid, uh, freshman in Southside Chicago. So um, these experiences do change you. Um, and my my hope that they change us for the better. 
Um, so I want to just say, uh, Gretchen, thank you for uh, taking your time to kind of talk to us on our, on our little podcast. And um, I'll, I'll leave the floor to you if you have anything you want to you know, share, promote your book, any uh, other um, podcast coming up. Um, um, I know that you're also going to get about to be inducted into the U.S. Veterans uh, Women's Hall of Fame. So congrats on that. That's a, a very big <laughs> honor um, uh, to someone who uh, deserves it. Um, and I, I always feel like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're too humble, Gretchen, but, um, that just speaks to your character, um, that, you know, um, because in, in my opinion, I, I will tell any civilian or, or, or male veteran, some of the most badass, uh, veterans I know are, are the women veterans who, who serve their country. Um, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fuck with y'all. Pardon my language, but, but I wouldn't. I'm scared of you all more so than I, I'm scared of anybody else. And you should be scared. <laughs> and I think that as a veteran myself. So. Thank you for having me. What a great conversation. I hope it's helpful. And, you know, my, my one thing is if you ever know anybody that needs any help that just can't seem to find it, you know what? Give them my number. I'll talk to them. And I'll do my best to, to get them whatever they need to get to get over that speed bump in life. So uh, because life is worth living, regardless of the trauma that you might have experienced. Um, and so anyway, feel free to do that. I don't care who you give it to. Just give me, give me a heads up because I don't take strange calls. But um, <laughs> really... <laughs> I will do. Uh, yeah. And, and, and believe me, I, I do know what it's like to. Uh lose a friend that you um you serve with and spend so much time with and uh to not be here so um so well thank you very much and we, we really really appreciate it uh brian do you have anything else before you wrap up no yeah i just wanted to say thank you i really appreciate it thanks um, brian yeah i've had uh i've had friends that served in the military and kind of talk about their experience but no one who's you know as high ranking as you and kind of experienced everything that you experienced so it really taught me a lot so i greatly appreciate it thank you thanks so much you guys We'll see you soon, okay? All right. Well, all right. So thank thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you're interested in learning more about this topic, you can follow us on Facebook at Q Culture one and Twitter at QCulture. That's Q-U-E, Culture. There we'll be posting the links to the documentaries, books, and articles we mention on each episode. Also, don't forget to check out Lornette's blog, The Evolving Man Project, his book, Even the Faders. And if you're in the mood for some U.S. history, check out our monthly monthly history edition episodes with the two of us and my brother steve thanks again everyone for listening and remember to question everything Any views or opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to Brian and Lornette or their guests and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that Brian and Lornette or their guests may or may not be associated with in any professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.